Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandreou. Fear is personal, tribal and adaptive. It is contingent and acquired. It is central to how societies are organized and regulated. As soon as we recognize that fear has this acquired social and cultural dimension, we concede the possibility that it may be unlearned and our responses modulated. Those are the words of my guest today from his latest book, Fear, An Alternative History of the World. He's a cultural historian and founder of the organization Open Cube, previously a professor of history at the University of Hong Kong. He has held fellowships at Cambridge, Oxford, LSC and King's College London and been a visiting scholar at NYU. Welcome to the bunker, Robert Peckham. Thank you very much. Robert, why was this book 35 years in the making, as you say, and what prompted you to finally sit down and write it? Well, I guess an experience that I had 35 years ago foregrounded certain issues that, as an academic, have been very central to the work I've been doing. So 35 years, perhaps not in the writing, but certainly 35 years gestating and finding its articulation in different things that I've written. So for the last 20 years, I've been interested in the history of epidemics and became very interested in the ways in which fear was managed during these sort of crisis events. I would say what prompted me to write the book in the form that it took was my experiences in Hong Kong, particularly in the run-up to 2019 when there were protest movements in Hong Kong and then a violent anti-protest crackdown by the government. I think what it prompted me was to think about what history can and can't do and the sort of context within which history gets written or not written, as the case may be. But being the head of the Department of History at a major university where uh, censorship was creeping in and many of our own students were involved in the protest movement, these sort of raised quite urgent issues. Um, And then, of course, the pandemic came along. And so I felt that the sort of history that I'd been writing over the last 20 or so years had a particular context and a poignancy in the present. And so that kind of was a motivator for the book. So different routes to the book. Yeah. Now you separate, I think I'm right in saying, the sort of biological identify risk and fight or flee response from fear. And you posit that harnessed properly, fear can be actually quite a useful thing. You term this benevolent fear. Give me an example, either historical or hypothetical, to just give flesh to that concept. Yeah, so I'm sort of been interesting as a sort of backdrop to that in the way that fear is not only a coercive tool, but, but may have this kind of generative aspect to it. And I think we need to obviously handle and think about the term benevolent fear with a great deal of uh, scepticism, because fear has been used ostensibly benevolently in very nasty ways. But I, I guess what I'm looking at is fear as a motivational force that can be progressive. And you know whether that's motivational in the sense of galvanizing action to confront a real threat that we face, I guess we could think about climate change, uh, or for that matter, any other big social issue that we're confronted with, issues of inequality, etc., where, you know, there are fears of, of, of the ways in which society may be fragmenting dangerously. And thinking about those fears is not a bad thing. I also think that there's a sort of an interesting way of thinking about a lot of the reform movements that happened from the 19th century into the 20th century, where we tend to think about 
the big social reform movements as being movements that were in some way spurred by humanitarian feelings. But I would argue in many cases, they were spurred by fears. So fears are that the poverty could sort of lead to crime and revolution, mm-hmm. etc., or, or that disease that lingered in poor quarters of the city uh, could infect other parts of the city. So the idea of reform there that brought about benevolent change was actually motivated in many cases by fear. On the other hand, I would caution against, in some sense, benevolent fear, in that often it's charismatic leaders that put forward the case for managing people's fears, but in the end, do so by using another set of fear tools. So I think we must caution against this idea of benevolent fear at the same time. Now, much of the book looks at how fear has been weaponized in in service of various causes. And there must have been times when you thought, I'm sure, writing it, why did I have to take on the whole history of the whole world? Couldn't I have limited myself a little bit? But it is very interesting to see it pop up again and again in the service of sometimes unsavory, other times commendable causes. And what interests me is, have you discovered a pattern of how that actually happens? I should say, in response to your observation about the sort of global nature of this fear history, that yes, in one sense it is global, but in the other it's very much a Eurocentric view intentionally, in that as a historian of empire and colonization, I'm interested in the exportation of certain politics of fear Mm, from mm. Europe around the world. And so in that sense, it's not a comparative cultural history so much. Sure. But in terms of weaponized, evoke very early on in, uh, in the book, this idea of a sort of reconfiguration of fear, that, that fear is never lost, but just gets sort of reworked into new political regimes. I try to trace chronologically a history of, in one sense, centrifugal and centripetal fear, how fear gets centralized and used in bureaucracies mm, and mm. government, and how then fear disperses through systems. So I look at industrialization, I look at global capitalism and the kinds of fears that underpin it, ultimately looking at you know, slavery. In terms of weaponization, I, I'm sort of interested in the ways in which weaponization then opens up a very, very complex politics of fear, whether it's the French Revolution, where it's the fear of tyranny that is a galvanizing force for revolutionaries who then use fear in order to protect a certain ideological values that they're promoting. And then other kinds of fears are opened up and they start to define progressive and conservative forces in the 19th, 19th century. I think there are lots of examples of how fear is weaponized and then opens up this dangerous terrain. I mean, one has to look at, I guess, US politics of how a, have a fear politics, you know, that someone like Donald Trump is promoting backfired when you have then a pandemic and having promoted fear at the heart of your politics, then trying to tone down and say, well, we have nothing to fear from a pandemic. It's a difficult thing to do. I mean, that's the impression I got really, whether that was your intention or not, I don't know, but almost that it exists as an energy under the surface and occasionally it can be converted into sort of kinetic energy that does something very violent very quickly and changes things and then dissipates 
but is still there as a sort of bubbling under the surface, waiting for the next person or the next thing or the next development or the next demagogue to somehow focus it and, and turn it into kinetic energy again. I think that's a very good way of expressing it. And I think that it's easier to focus on violent crisis moments as exemplary of fear and much harder to get to that dispersed, diffused fear that adheres within systems. And of course, that gets us into a very political terrain very quickly, as, yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah. as I'm discovering. So because people don't like that kind of critique of systems so much. It's much easier to have a sort of narrative history that is in terms of, you know, peaks and troughs, etc. And it's a much thornier issue uh, to grapple with that inherent fear. I just thought it was very interesting considering how many developments that we're seeing today have the roots in a sort of general discomfort that people are not being listened to and whether there is something there that can be identified as a as a pattern. Specifically, you, you say that fear is instrumental to the formation of nation states. That really tickled me. Can you explain that a bit for our listeners? Yes, I suppose that one of the reasons that I start where I start, I start in the 14th century. I start on terrain that is in some sense very familiar to me as a historian that's focused on pandemic history. What I'm interested in is how an event creates a, a shock, psychological, social, political, economic, um, that is an important factor in shattering a certain world order, if you like, put crudely. And in the turmoil that follows, I'm interested in, in, in the wars of religion and the Reformation. I'm interested in the ways in which rulers, their claim to power becomes one of managing fear. And it's at this time, in other words, 16th, 17th centuries, that we begin to see more focused discussion on the ways in which fear, on the language, of more, more focused mm. discussion on fear, whether it's in drama, Shakespeare, whether it's in you know, philosophical writing or overtly political writing, beginning with Machiavelli, etc. So I'm interested in how the states in this turmoil begin to build bureaucracies where the management of fear becomes a central justification. And that is the moment, incidentally, that Europe begins its massive expansion, imperial expansion. And empire becomes an interesting testing ground uh, both uh, a ground for using some of the experience of that fear politics in other geographic locales. It's that centripetal and then centrifugal history of fear. It's centralization, it's working its way into a, a governmentality, and then it spins out of control. And then part of the story that I then take up is the way that it does spin out of control and, and becomes diffused in ways that ultimately begin to challenge that idea of centrality. And the idea of governance itself, the idea that governance can, in some sense, manage global fear. Yeah, because I, I note that in many of the more recent examples in your book, from the moral panic of the 50s, McCarthy's nuclear war, to the AIDS epidemic, to the war on terror, some group has to be othered that is absolutely instrumental and actually creating a national identity is a very easy shorthand to say we are British, you are not, or we are whatever, you are not. I think that's a very, very important point that, that needs kind of reiterating that fear, it's very much 
linked to the kind of stigmatizing uh, that you're talking about, this this othering. And I think that is one of the dangers of benevolent fear. The idea that fear can be used motivationally can quickly spin into uh, as kind of stigmatizing politics. Mm-hmm. Yes, because once you've defined the groups, as it were, you create the precondition of them turning against each other effectively. That's fascinating. And actually brings me neatly to the next general area that I want to touch on. The second module on the COVID inquiry began here in the UK. I don't know if you know that because I know you're in New York at the moment. And it looks into political and operational decision-making during the pandemic. And what the early evidence of that has revealed is the extent to which fear was a factor not only in citizens' decision-making, but in leaders' decision-making. You know, the messages exchanged between them, they sort of drip with a panic. And it led me to, I think, a rather interesting question. Do we want leaders to be, generally speaking, fearless? Or is it better for them to be risk-averse? I think as early as 2021, you know, when the stories circulated about the um, Special Scientific Committee advising SAGE, you know, they were very avert about how in order for people to adhere to mandates, more fear was a required yeah. uh, policy. And that sort of set in motion, very, I think, a very dangerous situation. So I think this idea of panicking elite, of panicking political class, using fear as a tool is, is pretty much a recipe for disaster, you, you, you mm. know. Mm. Um, but in terms of leaders, I mean... Fear is useful in warning us of things that threaten us. So, you know, a fearless politician is a pretty scary politician who is not fearful of anything. I think that risk averse would be sort of dangerous. I think that we're so tied into this politics of fear that the issue of trust, of actually believing anything anyone says, is very crucial to the problem that we're facing now. Is the conspiracism around COVID actually a different kind of fear that emerged around the same time that the state or some even more sort of diffuse entity is somehow manipulating us for other clandestine reasons? And how do we recover from that? Because it seems to me that is very much one of the features of the pandemic that has stayed with us and maybe even intensified in some ways. Yes, I think the conspiracy issue that you're talking about, uh, again, relates very much to the mistrust element in politics. Um, I have to say that, um, you know, sort of my sort of first experience of the pandemic was in China. Early on, if you remember, the WHO was singing the praises of China. In fact, the yeah. Chinese model of pandemic management was largely the model adopted by most countries, you know, with lockdown and dramatic quarantines, etc. You know, conspiracy theories were around around the situation there. But I mean, from my perspective, I saw the pandemic being used quite blatantly as a political tool for crushing, you know, democratic protest movement. So I think it's a very, very complex situation where 
a sort of geopolitical history plays into conspiracy theories of countries blaming each other, and then how pandemic is used in certain ways as a repressive instrument. And so, you know, it's highlighted elements that have been present, you know, through epidemic histories, whether it's colonial histories, whether it's British and India using plague as a means of cracking down. But then the converse, the history of how protest movements and national uh, anti-colonial movements harness the energy Mm, mm. from that crackdown in order to drive nationalist and freedom agendas. So I think conspiracy is an overarching term that is banded around to cover a lot of different things. I understand what you're saying completely. It's a sort of it's a sort of cognitive consonance that it, exactly, everything exactly. that comes along somehow justifies the thing that the policy that I supported already, the thing that I wanted to do already, and as a matter of fact, acts as a sort of rocket booster to it. It just means I need to do more of it and more quickly, whatever that happens to be. Exactly. And I, I would say that there's, there's some relationship with evoking the conspiracy theory and the sort of fake news agenda. In other words, that anything you don't like is a conspiracy and everything you don't like is fake news. So that's also going on at the same time. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because we have seen a little bit of the reverse going on, sort of labelling, for instance, economic predictions around Brexit as project fear or labelling climate activists as alarmists who basically get off on the panic. So there is political capital in managing to capture the narrative of your side being the one that's not afraid as well. I think that gets to the heart of a really, really important um, issue. It's it's one that I, I, I think we it is possible to write a history of this particular predicament going back to the middle of the, middle of the 20th century. In the aftermath of uh, the Second World War, the Holocaust, you know, Stalin, etc., the left of politics, liberalism itself became, you know, fearful. And so instead of espousing, you know, a progressive, positive future, it was more defensive and protective. And I see in the sort of political world today that on the one hand, there's a project fear and encountering the project fear, the problem is that an opposition to that becomes totally focused on the discourse of fear. So they can't break free of the discourse of fear. So you don't actually hear the espousal of some progressive, positive, you know, road mapping of the future. It becomes totally embroiled in in fear mongering or in avoiding stuff. In avoiding stuff, making things happen. So I think the challenge is how do we break this impasse and you know promote some sort of idea of where as a society you know we are going because at the moment we're muddled down by this fear and fear-mongering. And it's extraordinary, even in the US, you know, to listen to politicians on both sides. And their first, you know, gambit is is a fear one. Either countering fears that are being sold by the other side before they even get to <laughs> being able to articulate some sort of social vision. Just to round off our conversation, since we are looking now at, at- Sort of current politics in the UK, in the US, and much of Europe, actually. You describe ecologism as an all too real threat, reimagined through language of regret and guilt that basically harks back to religion. 
And I wanted to ask you about that. Do you think occasionally climate activism adopts the wrong tone? Do you think there is a risk that if you make people afraid beyond a particular point, you actually paralyze them? You don't motivate them to make the changes necessary. You mire them into the belief that we're doomed. I think there is a danger that if you push fear too far, it leads to apathy. And so fear has to sort of be tempered. I personally like Rebecca Solnit's approach, which is recognizing the spare, but having recognized the spare, to somehow be able to maintain hope for positive sort of activism, if you if you if you like. So I think sort of fear, acknowledging the promotion of fear as a sort of tool for awareness, but also sort of accommodating that hope. And I think the balance there is a very difficult one. Of course, we're talking about a very mediatized world of sound bites and distortions. And so getting a message across is, is a very, very tricky thing, particularly, I would say, now. Okay, I think we're, we've terrified everyone enough, so I want, to end on a, I want to end on a more positive note. The history of fear, you write, is more hopeful than many accounts would have us believe. And I want to ask, how do societies find their way out of that paralyzing fear to hope and enlightenment? And more specifically, do you look around right now and think, well, actually, that is a really good development? that seems to be gathering pace. And that is a very good leader who seems to be capturing the imagination of a citizens in a non-terrifying way. Two points I would make. The first is that hope and fear that I, I tried to show are sort of twinned in the sense that when we spouse a cause, when we have a vision of the future, there's also intrinsically a fear that something may prevent that uh, future or something may subvert that, uh, either the values that we may be promoting. So fear and hope live in a conjoined way, in a complex way. So I think I think that's a sort of important thing to think about. I, I think that the very fact that we are sitting here having a conversation about fear, the very fact that fear is being foregrounded, that its political use is being foregrounded, means that there's a new awareness, I think, of what is happening in terms of yeah. the history, but also in terms of how that plays into the kinds of exploitation that are happening in the, in the present. So I'm hopeful there's a space opening up for a new conversation about fear politics. And I'm hopeful that out of that comes a more confident espousal of values and a future rather than being pull back into this mire that is this what I describe as the politics of fear. Robert Beckham, thank you so much. Our time flew by. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. Fear, an alternative history of the world is out now. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. Let me leave you with the words of Buddhist leader Thich Nhat Hun. Fear keeps us focused on the past or worried about the future. If we acknowledge our fear, we realize that right now we are okay. Our eyes can still see the beautiful sky. Our ears can still hear the voices of our loved ones. Our bodies are working marvelously. Right now, today, 
we are still alive. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alexandreou. The producer was Liam Tate, the assistant producer was Adam Rice, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.